Amen. Well, Sister Kim. Good evening. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Or who provoked him when they, all, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Powerful chapter, a lot in there. Are you ready? So it starts off with some noteworthy terminology here. The writer of Hebrews, who we highly suspect is Paul, uh, says some things here and you can't blow past them. There's no filler in the Bible. It's all there on purpose. So everything that's said here is not an accident, it's an on purpose. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also in all his house. So let's just look at there. He starts off by talking about the holy brethren. And who's he speaking about? The church. That's you and I. We are holy. You say, well, Pastor Rick, if you would have followed me around all day, maybe even if you were in my backseat during traffic today, you wouldn't say that. The truth is we're holy because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. If you're trying to be holy by your works, that's a slap in the face of God. By the works of the law can no flesh be justified. All our works are as filthy rags before the Lord. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're holy because of Jesus. And, he, and positionally we're holy. We need to understand that. Positionally we're holy. What does that mean? It's a theological term that suggests that as far as God is concerned, when he looks at us, we are holy if we are in Christ. Amen? 
He doesn't look at her sin. He doesn't see Rick and all his flaws. He sees a garment on me, the blood of Jesus, and he counts me righteous. Amen. One Pentecostal here. So positionally, I'm holy. But we should be valiantly pursuing personal holiness at the same time. This body of sin that we're in restrains us and holds us back from uh, holiness. And reflexively, many times, it's carnal in its desires. But you and I should be harnessing our personal holiness till it catches up with our positional holiness. Are you catching me? Amen. We don't just cast off restraint and sin all the more that grace should abound. God forbid, Paul says. No, what we are doing is we are allowing the Holy Spirit to purify us and to change us and to conform us to the image of Christ. Why? So that our personal holiness can catch up with our positional holiness. Now, I just, just, uh, just want to tell you here, that's never going to completely happen until we're, we're dead. Because we need to be delivered once and for all from this body of sin. Amen. So holy brethren, there's all that right in there. We're holy because of Jesus. We're brothers and sisters because why? We are the family of God. We are part of a body. When you and I get saved and we're in Christ, we become part of a family. How does it feel to be part of a big family? Amen. A big, messy, sloppy, dysfunctional Thanksgiving Day table family. That's the body of Christ. There's no perfect churches because they're full of imperfect people, but we're still a body. The, the perfection is the head who is Christ. And so we're brothers and sisters. We are the family of God. The implications uh, here that we are partakers of the heavenly calling. And, and that means that, you know, God called us. God predestined us. I, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but God looked ahead in time and knew that we would be what partakers of his heavenly calling we're saved because god chose us we didn't choose him i cringe when i hear people say i, I you know i was at a real rock bottom place in my life and i found god newsflash god was never lost you didn't find God. God finally got a hold of me. He finally got a hold of you. The eyes of our understanding were open and we saw truth. Amen. And what? We partake of the heavenly calling. What's the calling? That we should be sons and daughters of God. So we didn't choose God. He chose us. We're not saved by the will of man. Listen, you didn't get saved because your parents forced you or because they raised you in church. You and I are saved because of the will of God. Listen to Romans 8, 29 through 31. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is. He's working in us so that our, our personal holiness will catch up with our positional holiness. We're being conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, come on, do you ever feel like some days you're not going to make it? You ever feel like, well, this is the day my name's getting blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life? Man, it was a bad day, right? Listen, he's got us. He's called us. He's predestined us. He's, he, his keeping power is able to keep us. And if God is for us, who could be against us? If God wants us to be saved and calls us his own, who can snatch us out of his hand? 
it says here that Jesus is our apostle and high priest. Now, that might, that might seem interesting here to call Jesus an apostle and a high priest, but what the word apostle means is a sent one. And so we can all agree that Jesus was sent by the Father to do something specific. Amen? And what was that? To seek and to save that which was lost. To die in our place on the cross. Amen? So he is apostolic in that sense that he is a sent one. So to call Jesus an apostle is not demeaning. It's not out of line. You think, well, you know, Jesus is Jesus and, you know, then you got the apostles below him. Yeah, but he had an apostolic mantle on him. That's why he could have apostles below him. Hello? See, we need to understand something about hierarchy and order in the kingdom of God. So Jesus had that apostolic mantle. Why? Because he was a sent one. And he was also a high priest. Say high priest. high priest. Now, this high priest concept is very near and dear to the Jewish mindset. The Gentiles, you know, we don't necessarily get it, but we're going to unpack it and see if we can get it tonight. To the Jew, the term high priest was very profound. It meant a lot. A high priest ministered before God on behalf of the people. So if you were Jewish, you had to rely on the high priest to do what? Go into the presence of God and on your behalf and broker some kind of covering for your sin. Very important. Without a high priest, you had no way to approach God. And the high priest was only allowed to come into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God one day a year. And if you know anything about high priests, it, it was a job that, you know, you might not want to volunteer for because if you went in there and you had sin or you weren't covered correctly or you hadn't repented or you hadn't gone through the ritual just exactly right, you'd die in the Holy of Holies. They used to put a rope on their foot and bells on their uh, ephod so that they would ring. And, and if the bell stopped ringing, they'd drag you out. Who wants to be a high priest? No, the people, were they revered the high priest, and, and he went into the presence of God on their behalf, and he, he represented them, and he brokered covering for their sin before God. So to the Jew, a near, it was near and dear, the high priest, they understood the office of it. He addressed their sin. He advocated for them. He gave the prescribed offerings before God to cover them. And without a high priest, there was no connection to God. Now, as Gentiles, how important it is that we have Jesus as our high priest, amen? There's no connection to God without Jesus. Jesus says, if you have the Son, you have the Father, but if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Why did he say that? Because he's the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, that's Jesus Christ. He's the divine connection. Come on, amen? And so he is our high priest. So understand the terminology here is revealing the character and nature of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He's a sent one. He's a high priest. Very important. Verse 2 and 3, Jesus is compared to Moses in that he was faithful to do the will of him who sent him. Now, remember the theme of the book here is the superiority of Christ. So what we're learning in Hebrews uh, is that Jesus is everything we need, and this was very important to the Jewish mindset. Why? Because they had to move away from Moses and Abraham and the Mosaic law and step out of all of that and come into the kingdom of God where it was all about Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is proving the superiority of Jesus. That's why he compares and contrasts Jesus to Moses because Moses is a central figure in the Jewish mindset. So here's the comparison between them that, you know, Jesus and Moses were both faithful because they did the will of him who sent him. 
But pretty much that's where the comparison ends. Because before Moses was, Jesus said, I am. Whew, powerful. The point is being made, and it's a strong theme in the book, that Moses is great and he's wonderful and he did the will of God, but Jesus is superior to Moses in every way. And that's a big, that's a big pill for the Jewish thinker to swallow there because it, it's going to be hard for them to walk away from Moses because the law and Moses and the prophets and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was their whole world. But now it's got to be all about Christ. Jesus was more worthy than Moses, just as the builder of a house is more worthy than the house. And, and the, the, the writer uses this example of when a house is built, the, the house might be great and it might be wonderful, but the one who built it has more honor than the house. Amen. And that's what they're trying to show Jesus as creator has more honor than what was built in his name. Uh, this points to the fact that Jesus is preexistent. And what does that mean? He always was, amen? Before Moses, he was, I am, amen? Preexistent is an attribute, preexistence is an attribute that only God has. And there are some people who say, well, Jesus is not God. All throughout scripture, it will show the attributes of Christ, the preexistence of Christ, the fact that he's creator. All these are divine attributes pointing to the fact that Jesus is fully God. So Moses was faithful, but Jesus, like a master builder who built everything, has more honor than Moses. Uh, he is preexistent. Verse 4, we build and design things, you know, and God has given us creative ability. Uh, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, I want to take a look at that for just a second. How many people are creative and, and design and build things? One and a half people. Three, oh, two, praise all of us are creative. All of us do things. We, whatever our job is, God, why? God gave us that gift and that ability to design, to create. And so here, uh, that attribute that is given to us to design and create, you know, some people will build something. They'll build a, a, a company or they'll build a business or they'll, they'll build a, a product and, and, or they'll build a house or they'll build something, you know, with computers and they look at it and they think, wow, you know, look what I made. And it's true, we have some credit as tapping into the creativity of God and building. But understand something, everything that's built is built with the materials that God has given us to build. Everything that's built is built with the brain power that God put in us to build it. Everything that's built is built with the bodies that God gave, animated us with to create something. Do you, do you, get, you get where I'm going here? We can't take too much credit for what is built because, you know, we're just tapping into the creativity of God. He's flowing through us, but God is the master builder. He's the builder of all things. So it's great to tap into that and to be creative and to build, but understand, you know, God is the master builder and everything comes from him. There was a scientist who was having a conversation with God and he said to God, I bet you I can build a better man than you. Come on, it's just an illustration. Take it easy. God said, okay, but remember, I built man out of the dust. I built man out of the dirt. The, the scientist said, no problem. I can do it better. So God said, he poured out a pile of dirt on the floor. He rolled up his sleeves, and he said, let's start. And the scientist said, well, where's my dirt? He said, oh, you get your own dirt. <laughs> you can't make anything from nothing. Come on, that's good. Just chew on that a little bit. 
everything we do, everything, everything, every gift we have, every talent we have, every mental capacity we have, there are people who can understand all kinds of things about science and about, you know, do, do you ever look at your cell phone and wonder, who the heck made this? No, you never, you just, no. You Take one apart one time and look at the electronics in there. It's amazing. And that's all God's creativity. God is the master builder. God is the creator of all things. God made the dirt and the dust that he fashioned man out of, and he breathed the breath of life into him. Wow. So we get a glimpse of the awesomeness of God here. Verse 6, Jesus is a son over the house uh, forever. And uh, the house is the body of Christ and we are the church, and Jesus is the head. <clears throat> there again, verse 6 gives us a picture of Christ's supremacy. Remember, the, the thrust of the chapter is to prove that Jesus is superior to Moses, but Christ was faithful as a son. So Moses was faithful to do his part, and we're not demeaning him or taking anything away from him, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. See, the church, the body of Christ is is that house. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So there we're seeing Christ supreme. He's the head. He's head over the church. He's superior to Moses in every way. The last part of verse 6 is our objective. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until that day. So we got to hold on to the end. Amen. How many believe God has keeping power? The Bible teaches it, amen? God is able to keep us, amen? So he has, and when we are saved, we, we get an assurance of salvation. And in that assurance of salvation, we learn to rest on God's keeping power. The truth is that a lot of us, at times, the devil makes us feel like we're not saved. And we're not gonna make it. And if you won't admit that in public, you're just being intellectually dishonest because it's a tactic he uses on all of us. And the truth is we got to learn to rest in his assurance and we got to learn to rest in his keeping power. Not, oh, was I good today? Was I bad today? Did I re do my devotions today? Did I read two chapters today? I'm extra holy today. <laughs> Come on, it's not about that. That's works-based, amen? Grace, it's a free gift. Of, salvation is a free gift. And so, you know, our objective is to hold fast and to have confidence, not in ourselves, but in him, and to hold firm to the end. That's what I want you to get. You and I need to hold on to Jesus, come hell or high water, no matter what occurs. We need to get that tenacity, like the woman with the issue of blood. What did she do? She pushed her way through the crowd. Rude lady. Pushed her way through the crowd, grabbed a hold of Jesus, and wouldn't let go. Her tenacity was so powerful, her faith was so large that Jesus said, I felt virtue leave me. Her faith began to heal her just because she grabbed a hold of him and the power of Jesus Christ went into her and Jesus felt that he goes, whoa, somebody just plugged in. And the healing virtue, you know, and the woman, the issue with the blood, you know, we know the end of the story, and he said, your faith has made you whole. But what I want you to grab hold of here is the tenacity, and that's the tenacity we need. You know, it's not about doctrine. It's not about theology. It's not about titles. It's, it's about holding fast to Jesus Christ, firm to the end. You say, well, what's going to happen before the end? I don't care. I'm not letting go of Jesus no matter what, and neither should you. 
Verse 7 through 11 is a recap of Israel's history from God's perspective. Do you ever realize that history or uh, events that occur, you know, it matters who you talk to about what really happened. You know, you could be in a crowd and you see something happen and someone else talks to a news reporter and their idea of what happened is completely different than maybe what you saw right in front of your eyes. That's just human weakness, human filters that we sift things through. But here's a perspective of Israel's history as God sees it. And this is important for us to understand because, you know, in the end, it's only God's opinion about things that matter. We're not going to be able to, you know, go to court with God and argue about, you know, well, I was really a righteous person. or No, God's judgments are final and his opinions shape his judgment. Amen. Verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, that's, what, that's God's perspective. They would say, oh, it was tough in the desert, and we didn't have enough water, and we didn't have any meat. God said, you hardened your heart, and you provoked me. Verse 9, where your fathers tried me and tested me. And saw my works for 40 years. So there's God's perspective. It, it wasn't that, you know, he was supposed to try and test them. We're going to talk about this. But he said, you tried and tested me. Wow. Verse 10, therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's stop there. So here's Israel's history from God's perspective. It starts off with a warning. If you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen to that. If you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. If the preacher's preaching and the word's going forth and the Holy Spirit convicts you, don't harden your heart. If you hear something out of this that you don't like and it rubs you the wrong way, don't get mad at me. I'm your friend. He's in management, I'm in sales. I'm just saying what he told me to say, okay? So if it rubs you, don't harden your heart. All of us hear stuff that it rubs us the wrong way. It, it makes us angry. And then we have a choice. I'm talking about in church. We got a choice. Am I gonna humble myself and allow the Holy Spirit to convict me and break me so that I can break free? Or am I gonna harden my heart and do another lap around the mountain? Come on, I'm preaching tonight. If you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. What a universal truth for every believer. When we hear God speak, we must obey. That is the only alternative we have. We don't get to consider it, to pray about it, to ask, you know, everybody's opinion. We don't get to take a vote. When God speaks, we have one alternative. We have to obey. Anything less starts a chain of events in our lives that's not going to turn out good for us. And here's why. Because partial obedience is still disobedience. Well, I did most of what you said, God. Isn't two out of three good enough? And it's not. Partial obedience is still disobedience. You know, people like cafeteria Christianity. If you've ever walked through a cafeteria or a buffet, maybe we should call it buffet uh, Christianity. Now, what do you do at a buffet? You don't have to take everything from every station. You go and you pick and choose what you like. Amen? Come on, I followed some of you at the buffet. I've seen your plates. 
And, you know, we don't, you know, if you don't like spinach, you're not putting spinach on there. If you don't like broccoli, there's no broccoli. You know, you take what you want. Now, you can't approach Christianity like that. And you can't approach God like that. Well, God, I like this grace stuff, and I like this free gift of salvation stuff, but this holiness stuff, I'm going to pass on that. That's like green jello. I don't want it. Okay? So understand, our only recourse is obedience. Anything less is disobedience. And disobedience starts a chain of events in our life that is not good for us. Verse 8, God sees the disobedience of man as provoking to him. What does he say? They provoked me in the desert. What does that mean? He said, you know, I, I asked them, I delivered them. I, I, I gave 10 plagues. I brought them out of slavery. I was taking them on this short journey to the promised land, and it took 40 years, and in those 40 years, they provoked me. It's disrespectful when we refuse to listen and submit to God's authority. You know, if you have children, you know, the most frustrating thing is when you tell them what to do and they do the exact opposite and then the consequences are just ridiculous. Don't touch this. Don't, you know, that's hot. Don't, and, and, they just, and if they don't want to listen, as a parent, that is the most difficult thing to deal with. And every time I find myself thinking about that or struggling with that, I think about what God must go through when he tells us over and over again. And we don't listen. God says, it provoked me. We might find it strange that God could be provoked, but he is pro provoked by our disrespect and by our lack of submission. Smart people don't pick fights they know they can't win. Hello? If Pee Wee Herman walked in here tonight, he would not pick a fight with Ray. See, when we pick a fight with God by not listening, that's the epitome of stupidity. Anybody alive out there tonight? So don't pick a fight you can't win. Be wise. Don't disobey God. It's provoking to him. Calling out, you know, the biggest and the baddest because of your pride, is, it doesn't make you brave. It makes you a fool. Being disobedient to God doesn't, doesn't make you principled or I'm going to stick to my guns. No, it makes us foolish. Understand that. The devil squared off with Jesus on several occasions. And Colossians 2.15 shows us the result. It says this, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The devil squared off with Jesus, and Jesus made a public spectacle out of him. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave from him. He liberated captivity. He destroyed the power of sin over mankind, and he made salvation available to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. You want to pick a fight with God? <laughs> Don't do it. The wilderness was a trial for the Jews. They just came out of slavery, but instead of them submitting to the trial and submitting to the test, verse 9 tells us they turned it into a time of trying and testing for God. Do you see how they flipped the script there? This would be a time for trying and proving them so they can move into the promised land. And instead, they turned it around. Well, we're going to test you, God. We're going to try you, God. We're going to see if we want to serve you. We're going to see if we want to listen to you. Do you see how backwards that is? 
Yet our generation does that all the time. Oh, we don't want to serve God. We don't want to be restricted. We don't want to submit to God's moral law. We want to do our own thing. So they, they shake their fist at heaven. The Christian doesn't do that. We submit whether we understand or we like it or not. We submit to God because we know who saved us. So the Jews flipped the script there in the desert. Now it's verse 9 is all about. When we obey God when we don't understand, when we obey God when we don't agree, that's when he is proving us. He's testing us, and we pass the test when we're obedient, even if we don't feel like being obedient. Are you getting this? Well, God, I would have been obedient, but I didn't understand, and you didn't explain it to me. He doesn't have to explain it to us. We just have to listen, amen? Do you know when, do you know when God pro- is proven to us? When we hear him speak and we're obedient and we see how things work out. And they work out great. See, that's how we, we gain faith. That's how we gain confidence in God. Not by questioning him and quizzing him and testing him and asking him all kinds of things that, you know, we couldn't understand or we, we, we don't need to know at the moment. We don't test God. He tests us. He proves us. And when we're obedient to him, he proves himself to us so that we can have great confidence in him. Come on, say amen. Verse 10 is sobering in that it shows us that God gets angry with his own people and he disciplines them accordingly. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they will always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. So just the fact that God can get angry with his own, amen? Now you could watch a mother in the grocery store when you were a kid yell at another kid and it wouldn't even faze you. But when your mom was angry... Anyone? Anyone have a mom? Anyone ever bad in a grocery store? Yeah, I used to get threatened. I think Macy's, Bloomingdale's, all, all those stores. I used to hide in the clothes racks. My mom would come inside. I see a head come inside the clothes rack. You better get out of there. You're going to be dead when you get home. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Let me get out of the clothes rack. So when you're disciplined by your own parent, that's when it gets real, Amen. And when God's angry at his own, that's when it gets real. And it, it got real for them in the desert. He was angry with them. Uh, he had issues with the children of Israel in the desert, and he has the same issues with mankind today. We have a tendency to go astray spiritually. Our hearts are after everything but God. You know, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them? And our hearts... And our flesh want everything but God. Write down what God's will is, and your flesh wants nothing to do with it. It wants everything else. And so, you know, God had issues with them, and he has issues with mankind today because nothing has changed. The heart of man still goes astray spiritually. We want everything. Our flesh wants everything but God. And we don't take the time to learn his ways. Look what he says there. You know, this is so sad from God's perspective here. Uh, they will always go astray in their hearts. He realized with that generation, they're not going to repent. They're not going to get right. They're not going to love me back. They're not going to trust me. They're not going to let me be their God. Wow. What a sad thing. Their hearts will always go astray. And they did not know my ways. And that, that's an interesting thing that, you know, they were with God, and he led them, and he did miracles among them, yet they never knew him. It takes more than 
being around godly things to get to know God. We've got to be alone with him, intimate with him, open to him, allow him to move in our lives and in our hearts. We need a secret place, a quiet place, a time where we can commune with him. If not, we can be in religious activity all of our lives and never get to know him. And that breaks God's heart, and it should break ours too. Spend time in the presence of God. You say, Pastor, I got a lot of things to do in a day. I don't care. The most important thing you can do with your day is spend time in the presence of God. Get up a little bit earlier, amen? (laughs) Some people are holding fast. No, I'm not getting up earlier. Whenever you do it, in your car, during your commute, at lunchtime, at night, in the morning, whatever works, but don't let days pass without spending time in his presence. Worship him every day. Spend time in his presence every day. Spend time in the word every day. The the word of God has such a transforming power. Look, I've been saved since I'm 14, and I need this more every day in my life than ever before. I got Bibles that are worn out, underlined, sermon notes, everything, all different colors. I mean, you, you look in the Bible after Bible, but you say, well, you got it by now? Have you, have, you, have you figured it out? Do you have enough? No, I feel like every time I open it up, it's fresh and alive, it's new, and I need more. So spend time in his presence, spend time in his word, get to know him, because they walked around in circles for 40 years and they died. Their bodies fell in the desert and they never got to know him. And he said, you know, God expresses his heart was broken over that. Again, in verse 11, God's response is sobering. He says, what I swore in my wrath, the wrath of God revealed against his own children there. I swore in my wrath, they will never enter my rest. Wow. God was angry with his own His wrath was directed at his own. This is a wake-up call to the contemporary church. We we in our generation think we can live how we want, do what we want, pick and choose out of the Scripture what we want, and God's just going to bless us and make everything, and it's going to be wonderful. But, you know, like we've said many times, if you read the book of Revelation to all but one of the churches, he told them, repent. So repentance needs to happen not just for the lost it needs to happen in the church and god's response to his people is you know i swore to them in my wrath wow the wrath of god not revealed against unrighteousness in the sense that you know lost people but the unrighteousness of god's people now i know this is old testament but we'd be wise to you know have a little bit of humility before a holy god God was angry, and he let them know. This is a wake-up call to the churches. Romans 11, 20 through 22. Listen to this. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Who's he speaking of? The Jews. And you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fearful. For if God spared not the natural branches, the Jews, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Severity, but to you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you shall be cut off. Not Old Testament, Romans 11. Wow. The goodness and severity of God. You may hear more about that in the future. Verse 12 tells us we should be watching out for our own lives. An evil 
an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So what should we be watching out for in our own lives? An evil and unbelieving heart. It's a heart issue, amen? And, you know, and just because we're saved and just because we're Christians and just because, you know, uh, you know we've, we've tasted the goodness of God doesn't mean that our hearts can't get corrupted. I know we don't like to hear this, but, hey, it's in, it's in Hebrews. It's chapter 3. I can't skip it. I don't want to hear about this evil, unbelieving heart. Let, let's hear a message on grace. Let's get some goosebumps. Let's have a line. Let's lay hands on each other. Well, there's a time for that. But there's a time to look at our own hearts. David see, David asked the Lord to test and see and, and, and check out my heart, God. Why? To see if there be any wicked way in me. Does our generation have that humility to ask that? Wow. Help us, God. An evil and an unbelieving heart. Now, in the natural realm, heart issues can be very serious. Can we agree? If you, know, if you had the choice of whether you're going to have a hangnail or you know, a clogged heart valve, what would you pick? Most people are saying hang now. This is a smart crowd. Heart issues are very serious in the natural realm. If you have heart problems, you have got to get them sorted out or you will die prematurely. You don't live long without your heart. It, it pumps the blood that keeps us alive. So in the spiritual realm, heart issues are even more serious. Why? Because it's not just the body that's at stake. It's the, it's the eternal soul of man that's at stake. You see that? So these spiritual heart issues can be very serious and have eternal consequences. Now, wisdom dictates that we take a spiritual heart exam every once in a while. What's an evil heart? It's a heart that's given over to pursuing wicked things. All of us have desires that are ungodly. All of us have appetites towards sin. That's part of the flesh. But when we give our heart over to, to, to be after wicked things all the time, our heart becomes evil. If you've ever met someone who had a heart condition like this, you'll remember because it's a fearful thing to, to watch. Someone who's always stealing and, 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 and lying and all, all of these wicked things, and that's all they want to do, go from one thing to the next. Come on, any, anybody ever meet somebody like that? Yeah, a few of us have. Uh, an evil heart, if you, an unbelieving heart. Well, I, I would never do bad things. I would never do evil things. But do we believe? Do we believe the word of God? When we hear it, do we partner with it? Do we mix faith with it? Do we apply it to our daily living? Listen, having an unbelieving heart is a heart that refuses to take God at his word. And this was the problem. God would say something, and then they'd be like, ah. And how many times do we do that? And thank God for his patience with us. Thank God for his long-suffering, one of his divine attributes. <laughs> Some of us have made God suffer a long time. But he's been patient with us, amen? <laughs> but we don't want to refuse him so much that our hearts go bad and they turn evil. We don't want to refuse him so much that, you know, we, we become to the place where we have an unbelieving heart. The end result of an evil, unbelieving heart is that we fall away from the faith. And that, that's the problem there, is that these things eventually do catch up with us. Take care, brethren, that not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Wow, that's a fearful thing to contemplate. But if we let our heart go bad, it's going to catch up with us. Verse 13, the body of Christ has protective 
uh, elements to it that I want us to look at here. Because we're part of the family of God, you and I insulate each other from the external things of the world. It says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, we need to encourage each other. We need to be together. We need to fellowship together, not just come to church and wave at each other and, you know, socialize a little. We, we need a, a deeper connection than that, especially in the last days as things get darker. Amen. I believe the body of Christ is going to learn to lean on the body of Christ more than ever before. You know, you mentioned the body of Christ and the family of God, and people are like, but when perilous times come and we draw faith together and we draw strength from one another and we get in the presence of God and there's a multiplied anointing, we're going to really find out how vital the body of Christ is. So we have a protective nature. Uh, there, there are elements where when we're together, we're safer. What is the devil like? He likes an isolated victim. Maybe you've heard of an animal called the Cape Buffalo. Who's heard of the Cape Buffalo? Come on, watch the Outdoor Channel. Let's go. A Cape Buffalo is a huge African buffalo that has big sweeping horns. It's completely black. The males can be over 2,000 pounds. And if you've ever seen a, a Cape Buffalo defend its young, its little cows, from lions, you will understand the protective nature of the church. When lions attack Cape Buffalo, there's no way they could bring down a full-grown one. So they'll attack the weak and they'll attack the young. And when they do, what the Cape Buffalo do is they'll surround. I've seen this on TV many times. You know, their ears are tattered, they're bloody, the lions have attacked them, and they'll run right in the middle and they'll form a circle around them. And they'll all face out. And they have these big sweeping horns that can literally eviscerate a lion. And they'll catch a lion with that horn and they'll lift him in the air. And I've seen them throw them as much as 20 feet in the air and tear them open. Because they protect their own. That's exactly how we have to be in the church. When the devil, the lion, isolates the weak and the young and tries to tear them to shreds, we need to raise up a standard, amen, and to reach out. Not, oh, well, I'm just going to pray that God. No, you and I need to put ourselves in harm's way, as it were, and stand in the gap for them. Can learn a few things from a buffalo. Verse 14 our job is to hold fast to Christ to the end. Again, a reiteration of that. Uh, it's a tenacity. It says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So there again, God is, you know, in his word here in this chapter here, reiterating some themes. And the fact is we've got to hold on to Jesus and we've got to be careful to obey when the Lord speaks. Amen. Uh, verse 7 and 8 have this same theme, and here it is repeated again in the same chapter. Why is God repeating things? Is he running out of material? No, he's repeating it because it's important and we need to get it. Amen? So hold on to Jesus. If you hold on to him, nobody can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Verse 16 and 17, the Hebrew slaves of Egypt never got over the 
slavery that they endured in Egypt. That whole generation died in the desert. Now, if you study the Old Testament and you understand typology, Egypt is a type of sin. It's a representation of the worldly system, the sinful worldly system of man. When God took his people out of Egypt, it was, uh, you know, it was a, a display of him, what? Taking his people out of the sinful world and making them separate, a separate people, amen? And that's exactly what he does for us. That's why the Old Testament is types and shadows showing us events that were going to happen in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God does the same exact thing. He takes us out of the world by the blood of Jesus. He makes us part of the family of God, and we are separate from the world. Now, here's what the problem was with that generation that died off in the wilderness. They came out of Egypt, but Egypt never came out of them. Do you know God can free you and you can keep a slave mentality and you'll never get out of the shackles of sin? Wow. God help us. The implications here are very deep. We've been delivered from the slavery of sin by Jesus Christ but if we don't completely forsake the sin nature, uh, we'll continue to wrestle with the dominion of sin till the day we die. And for some, sadly, it will kill their faith and cause them to go back into the world. We've all seen that. Verse 18 is the last verse as I bring it in for landing here. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the rest of God is a place where we, we get to where we are at peace with everything. Many of us have experienced the rest of God in, in, you know, at times and in seasons, but many of us don't live there. We're troubled and we're anxious and we're worried about a whole lot of things. And you see, we can enter a rest where literally all of that melts away. <laughs> it's quiet now because we're all thinking, can we really get there? Yeah, we can really get there. Well, look at the things that stop us from getting there. It's unbelief. Unbelief is what keeps us from resting in God. That's why we need to hear and obey. We need to hear his voice and become obedient. When we aren't obedient, unbelief sets in and unbelief leaves us out of the place of rest. Listen, if we're not in this protective bubble of God's rest, then the world is going to ravage us. And some of us are ravaged by the world. Fears and worries and uh, desires and the, the, the sinful distractions of the world that choke our faith. And it leaves us striving. It leaves us conflicted. And it leaves us exhausted by life. If you're there tonight, I want you to entertain the possibility of getting free completely and entering into the rest of God. I'm not there yet. Maybe you're not there yet. But it is a possibility we should entertain and you say, well, how do we begin to get there? We need to bring our hearts before God and let him address the unbelief that's kept us wandering in the wilderness in circles. We must learn to obey him completely, unlike the children of Israel in the desert. We need to learn to believe his word completely, to reject the sinful nature of our flesh completely, or we won't enter his rest, and we're going to be exhausted by life. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I pray tonight that we could hear this message of Hebrews. Father, we see chapter 3 proving the superiority of Christ over Moses and to us as Gentiles brought into the kingdom of God. 
it's not a stretch for us. It's kind of easy. But this whole idea of seeing Israel's history and entertaining the, the fact that it can, be, it can be played out in our own lives, that we can be disobedient, that we, our hearts can get wicked, that we can have unbelief and doubt uh, steal away the, the rest of God in our lives. Father, help us to see, uh, enlighten our eyes, open our eyes, to see where the enemy's tricked us, where he's lied to us, where he's bogged us down. Help us to enter your rest. Father, I pray that we would be humble before you, that we wouldn't provoke you by doubting you, but that we learn to just trust you, to hear your voice and to obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him a hand clap of praise tonight.